Welcome to It Just Makes Sense, a podcast by two easily distracted, higher educated former lovers that explores all of the unpopular opinions, conspiracy theories, and cult leaders that make you want to scream, It, it Just, just makes, makes Sense. I'm Sam Smith. And I'm Jeff Seifert. And this week we're talking about Captive Audience, a real American horror story. What? It's a new show on Hulu. It's three episodes long. So imagine my horror and having to watch three episodes of anything. But it was really good. How long were each episode? Like 40 minutes. And I sound so annoyed when he's, when I was like, what? I <laughs> They're 40 minutes long each, but like. To write is like it takes me about an hour and a half to write each one for forty minutes. Like you know what I mean? Because I stop. Yeah, pause, no, I understand. Play, I stop, pause, Contrary to what you think, I do try sometimes. Oh my god, I can't. <laughs> but so this is it was a like a three part documentary. Okay. Okay. About this guy that I'll talk about the kidnapping case of Stephen Stainer, and in order to make what happened was. They made like a made-for-TV movie about this case. Okay. And in order to make it, the filmmaker has like hundreds of files of interviews with the family. And so it's kind of like a deep dive into that and what happened to the family after the kidnapping case. And then it's just wild. Let's just dive into it. All right. Let's get started. So we're off to Fresno, California, where there is breaking news. Home of the Fresno State Bulldogs. Go Bulldogs. <laughs> One of the most unusual kidnapping cases ever. Okay. 14-year-old Steven Stainer had been missing since 1972 when he was seven years old. And all of a sudden, he's returned home. You said 1972, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. A true miracle. And is it, though? So in the late 80s, a story was adapted into a made-for-TV movie titled I Know My Name is Steven. Have you ever seen it? I'm not sure. I kind of remember it. Like when they showed scenes, I'm like, oh, I feel like I've seen parts of it, but I don't really remember watching it. You know what I mean? As part of a two-part television movie, the screenwriter J.P. Miller had to collect dozens of hours of audio recordings as part of his writing process. So it includes conversations with the family, TV executives, and numerous interviews with Steven Stainer himself. So now we're going to hear about exactly what happened with the family and how they became such a phenomenon. Okay. Stephen's mother and father had always planned on having a family. They had five children, which like. Gross. Yeah. And that was enough for them. Like it should be. They lived in a neighborhood with tons of kids all the same age. And it was like a, they made it seem like a picturesque place to grow up. Right. When Stephen was in second grade at age seven, his mom said that he was a helper type of kid and trusted people super easily. It was December 4th, 1972. His mom was supposed to pick him up from school, but she got delayed at the hardware store. When she got to the school, Stephen was already gone. When she got home, he wasn't there, but she didn't panic right away. When he didn't show up a couple of hours later, that's when the whole family started panicking and she called the police. Okay. The police started searching for him everywhere. They did a canvas of the neighborhood. Um, There was like an access road that Stephen would have had to have crossed to get home that led to Yosemite National Park. So they were thinking like, did someone take him and he ended up there? Like, what is happening? What's going on? According to Stephen himself in interviews, he was stopped by a man on the street a a few blocks from his house. This guy asked him, 
if his mother wanted to donate something to the church. Stephen told him that his mom probably would want to donate something, so the guy offered Stephen a ride home. Okay. They passed the road where Stephen lived on, and there was like two men in the car, one driving, and one was the one that got him to get in the car. They told him that to, that they would call his parents to see if he could stay the night with them. Which Why? Is so weird, right? So the second night that Stephen was with them, that's when they told him that they called his parents again, and his parents said that he could stay a second night. Wait, so these people are complete strangers? Correct. I'm so thrown off. I know, but like, I think they just like took him, you know what I mean? And we're like, no, no, we'll call your parents. They said it's like you can be with us. Oh, but they actually didn't call the parents. Correct. Got it. You thought they actually did? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, I guess Stop. I didn't think they just were saying that. Then on the third day, one of them went out and came back and said that they had gone to court and had gotten permission um, to have possession of Stephen and that they that Stephen was his son now and that his parents willingly gave him to them. And he was 14? He was seven. Oh, when he came back, yeah. he's 14. Yes. Got so it. So right now he's seven. So like he doesn't know. You know what I huh. mean? They were like, oh, your parents are, they said that they didn't want you anymore. So we're going to adopt you. They had too How many sad. kids. Yeah. The poor kid. Right. So in the meantime, his family started sending out like flyers everywhere, asking everyone for help. In interview, Stephen reports that about a week after being taken, the man that took him started making him refer to him as dad and that his kidnapper would call him Dennis. So instead of being called Stephen, he would refer to him as Dennis. Okay. His kidnapper worked at Yosemite National Park, and from all that we can tell, he just wanted to have a little boy. He wanted to be a father, so he took one. Okay, that's weird. In the beginning, he pretty much just brainwashed Stephen into believing that his parents didn't want him, and after a while, Stephen wasn't exactly happy, but he was just... Got over it. Got over it. Um, And if he was scared that he left... Oh, he was, and he was told, like, he was kind of scared if he would leave because he said, like, you don't have parents anymore. If you leave me, you go to, like, an orphanage or a boy's home. Like, your parents signed away your the rights to you. Got it. His family kept trying to find him and keep his name in the news. But eventually it got so, like, far out that it just became kind of faded with more news that came in. It just became backgrounds of another missing child. Okay. Dennis Parnell, which is Stephen's new identity – Grew up with his new father about 260 miles away in Compte, it's like C-O-M-P-T-C-H-E, Compte, California. Sounds like it. He went to school there. His teachers and students remember him as kind of shy and quiet, but also as friendly. Compte was really remote, um, so no, none of the news of Stephen had really hit there. It was like kind of a remote little area of California right on the water. It was almost like a little slice of heaven for kids. They could just travel in gangs around the beach, um, ride around with their friends. But people in the community did not care for Kenneth Parnell, which was Dennis's father. Stephen's father. Kenneth let Stephen do whatever he want. He let him drink, smoke, drive cars. He kind of was just like, whatever makes you happy type thing. But it's not like he spoiled him because Stephen's friends remember like he didn't have a lot of clothes. He always kind of appeared dirty. And when they would all hang out, they would never go to Stephen's house. They would always pick him up at the end of the road. So even though his dad, quotations, let him do whatever he wanted, it's not like he was really taking care of him. You know what I mean? Sure. 
In the meantime, Stephen's family is still reeling. They're not sure what to think or what happened to him. They're still searching constantly for him, and they truly, his mom truly believed that he was still alive, that someone took him, and that they'd eventually find him. Leads kept coming in every few years since his disappearance, but they always ended in dead ends. The family went through so much that they had some, like, this is wild. They had, like, some psychics telling them that, like, I'm so sorry, but he's been cut up into little pieces. His body's been buried in certain areas. There was like another man who came forward and he claimed he just wanted the family to have some closure and admitted to burying Stephen in this abandoned field. But when the police went and dug up where he claimed the body to be, they found nothing. So each time the story would then like flash into the headlines and kind of be short lived, but it would like give the family hope and then kind of take it away. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. The family itself was just falling apart. Corey, which is Stephen's older brother, I'm sorry, not Corey, Carrie, which is Stephen's older brother, said that his dad was never the same, and Carrie felt a lot of, like, guilt about that. He felt like it was his fault that his little brother was missing. Kay, Stephen's mother, was the one who kind of held them all together while Del, their father, was falling apart. Del would drive around California hills looking for freshly dug ground, always looking for graves or for his son. He was constantly upset and angry. And this is kind of wild. If he saw something in the backseat of the car while they were like out, like say they were just going shopping or going to the store, and he thought that it might be Steven, he would follow that car and like question them and want to see what was in it. But like for years after, I feel like that's kind of... I mean, it is a little strange that he did it for years, but I could see why. I guess. So the only thing really getting his parents through was that they still had four other children, right? Kay knew that she had to push through for them or else it would have killed them. Okay. But let's get back to Stephen slash Dennis. One day over Christmas break, he was with his friends, and one of his friends asked him if he had seen his family over Christmas, if he saw his mom or, like, anyone else, because they knew he was just with his dad, but, like... What about the rest of his family? Okay. And he looked them dead in the eyes and said, my mother doesn't know I exist. And he started crying. When they asked what was wrong, he said he just wanted to go home. And when they were like, okay, we're on your way to your house. We're taking you there right now. He was like, no, I want to go to my real home. But they had no idea what the fuck he was talking about or what it was about. Like, you know what I mean? When you're a kid and you're like 12 or 13, you're just kind of like, okay. Sure. You know, maybe it's a divorce or whatever. Mm. So at this time, we learned through the movie that Dennis Parnell, or not Dennis, Kenneth Parnell was abusing Stephen, sexually Uh. abusing him. As Stephen made more and more friends and became close to other parents in the community, Parnell was getting paranoid that eventually he was going to get caught for what he was doing and decided it was time to move on from Comchi. So later we found out within like the first three days of him taking Steven, he started like sexually abusing and raping him. Oh, jeez! And it wasn't just him. There was like friends that would come and like he was like, yeah, it was like not good. Uh-huh. So he moves to Point Arena, which was even more rural area in the middle of nowhere in a one room shack. He went from Steven went from living in a bedroom with a house and friends to no access to the outside world anymore. Eventually, Parnell tried to get Stephen to help him pick up other boys, but Stephen refused to help. But that didn't stop him, um, even though Stephen refused to help him. Eventually, Parnell picked up another boy named Timmy, 
And it was another big story in the news that this little boy had been kidnapped. And Stephen was told to just accept him as his new little brother. But he knew what was going to happen to Timmy, and he didn't want that to happen to another little boy. So what eventually, Parnell admits, like, Stephen just got too old. He only want you know what I mean? He aged out. He was 14. He wanted a little boy. Got it. So he took Timmy and he ran. He went 39 miles running and trying to hitchhike with him on his back. Wow. And it was like stormy and windy and at night, like it was chaos. But a guy eventually stops and picks them up and drives them the entire way to Ukai where Timmy is from. The police eventually like they got to the police station and the police knew it was Timmy right away because he had been missing and they were looking for him everywhere. But they didn't recognize Stephen because when he went missing, he was seven years old. Sure, so he's much older. And all Stephen said was, I know my name is Stephen. So that's kind of where the name of that, the TV Documentary show came. came from. Got it. So 14-year-old Stephen Stainer was then reunited with his family. But the community in Kamchi was dumbfounded and horror-stricken to know that they had no idea of what had been going on. So, so many of his teachers then, they show them, like, on film, like, one or two that were being interviewed for this, like, in tears. Like, we had no idea that he had been kidnapped or stolen or was being abused. Like, if we had known more, maybe we could have done something. Yeah. Yeah. So, March 1st, 1980, the police arrived to the Stainer house to tell them that they had had Stephen in custody. Could you imagine? No. Like, what more could the family ask for? He came home. But his homecoming was a little chaotic. Okay. The news was, I mean, this was crazy. Sure. The media was everywhere. Big deal back then. Climbing on their roof, trying to take photos, hitting them with a, like a barrage of questions constantly. But the police refused to let Stephen really tell too much of his story and his time with Parnell. Stephen was not adjusting well, because if you think about it, his parents were kind of treating him almost like he was... A seven-year-old kid again or like he was their kid again and he was used to going out and smoking and drinking and do whatever he wanted and now uh, he's like you're not gonna fucking tell me that i have to follow these rules like right. after you guys so it was a transition i'm sure the media and the the thing was is like the media was always there too so back in the day and they showed this this was wild like there was no security really anywhere so like they found the newscasters would like walk into their school, go into his classroom, interview him while he's, like, walking to the bathroom, like, right in the school. And so he was, like, it was just constant, and there was nowhere to get away of it, away from it. And a lot of kids in his school were jealous of the attention that he was getting. So he was, like, it was a really hard adjustment back to all this because people were kind of, like, oh, did you do this for attention, all this other stuff, right? So... Stephen's mom wanted him to get into therapy, but his dad didn't believe or trust in therapists, so he wouldn't allow it. Well, that's dumb. And Stephen also felt like he was fine and didn't need to talk to anyone. Um, And he would talk a lot about his life as Dennis, and people really started to believe that, like, he enjoyed his life as Dennis, which I think there's parts of it that Stephen enjoyed. Like, this is what's hard is, like, you can't – even when, if you were an abused kid, there was times in your childhood that were good. Like, you and I mean. Yeah, and I mean, clearly, like, if they're making him change right. the way he's allowed right. to act and behave and seeing, like, 
there's more structure. Right. Clearly, he's going to say that yeah. he enjoyed parts of it. And like he had friends where he was from. Like if you like that was all he knew. It was right. his life. But his family wanted him to kind of ignore his life back then and not talk about it and just act like it never happened. So the one and the one who took kind of Stephen coming back the hardest was his brother, Carrie. Okay. He felt neglected, not important, overshadowed once his brother came back. And he was trying to be supportive, but it was hard when your brother was becoming a national hero and he was kind of in the shadows. So it was a big thing. They did treat Stephen like he won like this key of the town like all this stuff for saving Timmy so that was a big thing too uh, like he carried him to safety it. you know what I mean so he was being declared like this huge hero sure. um, but now comes the hardest part Parnell's trial and it was becoming hard because Stephen was saying now like Parnell never touched him he never abused him in any way really and Parnell was being a model prisoner he was very quiet he declined to talk to anyone but his lawyer and so his like his friends and family believed that he just took this son because he always wanted a son and he was just trying to like take what he wanted and they believed that this was the only way and that he didn't do it for like sexual reasons or sexual gratification because Stephen saying it never happened, right? But this wasn't his first conviction. He was arrested and put in prison before this for abduction of another child. Okay. Like, how so was he how let is, out? I don't understand this. How was he allowed to be around children? Right. So they started interviewing people who had known him in the community, and everyone kept saying that it seemed like, or who had known, they started interviewing people from, like, Compshi, who had knew Dennis and Stephen, and they were like, they seemed just like a normal father and son. Like, it just seemed like a normal family. It was like a relationship. But Stephen revealed he just didn't want to talk about what happened. He denied any abuse because he didn't want to deal with it. The first month after um, his return, the media just portrayed Par- Parnell looking for a family without a mother, um, without How? being married and all this stuff. Like, Either way, he still took a kid. Right. That, That's what and I don't he has get. the prior conviction. Right. This is crazy. Like, why are they portraying him to be some kind of, like, good yeah. guy? But then there was pictures discovered, and that's when they called Stephen back into the police station to ask what really happened. Um. There were Polaroid pictures of Stephen as a young boy in the nude, and it was a springboard to start investigating and wanting to know if Stephen had been molested. Stephen's mother is then on camera now, stating that they weren't going, like... She kept saying, like, we just weren't going to get into it at that time, and we weren't going to talk to the police or talk about it. And it's like, why not? Ma'am. But the media became more urgent about wanting to know exactly what had happened to Stephen. Charges were then added against Parnell that included conspiracy and lewd and lavicious lascivious lascivious acts upon a child. It's like they know I can't pronounce words. They just put it it in there to fuck with you. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm like, Jesus. The court, what was wild too was like, I guess it's not wild, but the court was open to the public. So anyone could go in and watch this trial. Mm -hmm. So Stephen, as well as Timmy White, had to testify against Parnell in the courtroom with the media present. The judge on June 8th of 1981 was sentenced, or the Parnell, to the maximum punishment that he could get for the kidnapping of Timmy White. Guess how long? Ten years. Seven years. Jesus. That's it. That's all so that's you probably got for- got, That's probably how he got out after that last child abduction was seven years that's for kidnapping all, Timmy. All you get is seven. 
70s. Well, it has to have changed. That yeah, can't be the I know. Anymore, like, right? right? So now the trial against Stephen begins, and Stephen is the first witness on the stand, the key witness. He didn't want to be on the stand and talk about it, and he appeared nervous but showed no emotion either for or against Parnell. But it's on the stand that Stephen finally confirms that he was forced to engage in sodomy and other sexual acts. Mm. So how long do you think he's given for Stephen's trial? What do you mean how long? Like how long do you So he was sentenced to? Yeah, he was found guilty. How long was he sentenced to? Five years. Seven more years. What the fuck? How insane is that? This is why. Since he was already charged with the maximum sentence for Timmy White, he was only required to serve a third of the sentence for Stephen, a sentence of 20 months. Wow. Isn't that insane? That's wild. So when Stephen heard this, he flew flew out of the courthouse and refused to make any statements. Because it's kind of like, could you imagine going through the entire trial, finally admitting to everything that everyone's trying, like getting him to do, standing on the stand. And then he gets And he stomach. gets less time in jail than Stephen spent with him. That's in fucking insane. Isn't that insane? How is that even? Uh, that cannot. That can no longer be the case. It can't be. And if he gets out, he's going to do it again. Of course he he's is. He's going to do it again. This is literally insane. He should be required to wear an ankle monitor for the rest of his life. I can't. And then it just kind of seemed after this that it was almost back to like real life for Steven. He got no counseling. He got no further help. They just returned him to his like quote unquote normal existence. Once he was back at school and people now know what had happened, they were brutal. They were calling him the F word, ganging up on him, like this poor fucking kid. Wow. You know? He started drinking heavily, smoking pot, taking hard drugs. The next four or five years were super chaotic. He went from girl after girl after girl until he met Jody. Hey, Jody. They met at a butcher shop where Stephen worked and quickly fell in love. Jody was 16 and Stephen was 19. She said that he was like calm and grounded compared to other guys their age. Stephen wanted to start a family right away and Jody got pregnant pretty quickly. Their age, 19 and 16, is quite a difference, (laughs) Jody. They got married and soon after she gave birth to Stephen Jr. And how old? They don't really say. They had two kids. They had a girl and a boy. The girl was the oldest. Right. Steven was a, like, he was a great dad. He spent, like, all of his time with his kids. He was going to work. Like, it seemed like he kind of straightened himself out a little bit. But he knew he had to figure his life out. One way that presented it to himself as a great opportunity for more money, a writer had come forward and wanted to make a TV miniseries about his, out of his ordeal. Okay. What had happened to him. So that's kind of how these tapes emerged. At first, the family actually had said no. But when he talks, you know? You might as well, right? And from what we know, um, Steven was pretty happy with how the movie had turned out. He even played a police officer in the show. Like when they returned um, the actor, Steven Stainer, to his parents, he's yeah. the one who like walked him up to his parents. Well, isn't, that, isn't cool? that cool? Yeah. But in an interview, Steven said, you know, it was just a movie. He kind of puts his past in the past. He doesn't really dwell on it. His mom hated the miniseries because she thought it depicted the family differently than what it was. But, like, I don't know. That's Hollywood, baby. Seriously. I mean, the actress was much more becoming than her. So. 
That's not very the nice. Show, the show aired on May of 1989 and had 40 million viewers, making it one of the highest rated miniseries on NBC. When this came out, the media went wild again. You said 40 million? Yeah. Right? Wow. They were saying things like, don't expect a sweet story out of this miniseries in a series of motels and shacks all over California. Steven Saner was molested. Like, they kind of made it, like... Salacious. Yeah. And it kind of made Steven start talking about what happened to him more and more. He started to realize that he could make an impact and hopefully stop this from happening to other kids. So his wife said that actually this miniseries coming out and him finally talking about his experience was almost like therapy um, to go out there and talk about what happened to him. Like he finally started going on shows and talking about the molestation and how he could possibly help others get through it and all this stuff, which is kind of cool. Okay. The miniseries is nominated for four Emmys. Everyone was super excited to find out if they won because they were going to dedicate it all to Steven. But the night before the Emmys, Stephen was riding his motorcycle back from work and was struck by a motor vehicle and killed. No. A hit and run. <gasps> so the police were now looking for who could have done it. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. The guy just pulled out right in front of him and Stephen died at the scene. Did they catch the guy? Mm-mm. <gasps> so the family lost Stephen all over again. Jesus. His kids were young, two and four. And what's wild is that, like, Clearly, his kids didn't know what happened to their dad, right? right? Like, in the past, until they saw this miniseries. Like, his daughter said she was eight when someone said, you know, there's a movie about your dad, and showed it to her. And why so, like, would you show it to an eight-year-old? Learning that about your dad that way? Well, not only just that, why would you show that to right. an eight-year-old? And also, like, another part to just be aware of, it kind of plays more into it, I guess, later. Steven's children don't have any connection with his family really they don't talk to his parents or their aunts and uncles they don't really say why they just say they don't have any connection with them that's strange i know so then after steven's death terrible things start to happen again such as a mother daughter and family friend vacationing near yosemite park vanish 42-year-old Carol Sund and her 15-year-old daughter, Julie, were taking a family friend from Argentina, 16-year-old Silvana Peloso, in a visit to Yosemite National Park. This was in February of 1999, and it was a big deal when they vanished in Merced because it's right it's where the Saner family were from, right? So it kind of seemed to hit too close to home, like was this happening all over again? Hopefully they would return just like Stephen was, um, but faster and not, and not such a horrible way. So the media was going wild again. There was FBI special agents looking into this case, and they were doing constant press releases. The parents of Carol's son, Francis, and Carol hired a private investigator to begin looking for their daughter and granddaughter because as time went on, they were getting desperate, so they sought their own help. When the women went missing, they were staying at the Cedar Lodge, just right outside of Yosemite Park. Eventually, law enforcement would find a burned-out red Pontiac near that location. When they opened the trunk of the car, there was two burned bodies inside. They were later identified as Carol Sund and Siliana Peloso. But where was Julie? And who did this? Where was she? People were hoping that maybe Julie was alive and... um. 
she was taken for a reason. You know what I mean? Like she was kidnapped and that's why they got rid of the other two. But shortly after the bodies were discovered, the FBI received a letter that said we had fun with this one, <gasps> along with a note that had a hand-drawn map showing where Julie's body had been could be located. Mm. She had been missing for about six weeks. She was wrapped in a pink blanket, and they were able to determine that the blanket came from the Cedar Lodge, the place she had been last seen staying the night. The pressure was now on to find out who the fuck did this. Okay. Police started wrangling up all the people on parole in the area and bringing them in for questioning, but nothing seemed to stick. But they told the public otherwise. They were like, don't worry, because this is bad press for Yosemite, right? Sure. Like, don't worry. We got all the it's bad all guys safe. in one place. It's all safe. Come to Yosemite. We got this. Right. But then a 20-year-old woman, Jolie Armstrong, was found killed near Yosemite Park a few weeks later. When her body was discovered, she had been decapitated. Her body was just behind her house in a stream, and there was a sighting of a car this time. A 1972 Powder Blue International Scout. I have no idea what the fuck that was. No it idea. sounds fancy. No, it doesn't at all. It was <laughs> a scout? Powder Blue International Scout? Oh my god. So it was. It had been seen driving in the area, and a few of the people who lived in that area know exactly who the car belonged to. Carrie Stainer, Stephen Stainer's brother. Okay. And now the now the focus was on Stephen and everything that had to do with the Cedar Lodge. Why? Why? Carrie was the handyman at the Cedar Lodge. Where they found the other body. Uh, he was living above the restaurant at the Cedar Lodge. Initially, the FBI didn't think that there was a connection. He didn't have a criminal past, and he was like a quiet, nondescript guy. But eventually, the FBI started to focus on him. So now the family has to deal with this as well. Geez, Could you imagine? That's wild. To realize the monster who did those things to that woman was family. His mother refused to speak about it on the documentary. I and bet. his sister said it felt just like a sucker punch. She didn't know what to do or say, and she didn't know how to talk to the media. And it, honestly, it didn't take much to get Carrie to confess. He immediately said he did it. He brought the FBI to Julie's home and explained what he did and how he did it. So this is so wild. A news reporter heard that Carrie Stainer had been arrested, and he heard he was being taken to a local jurisdiction for processing, and in his head he was like, huh, I bet he doesn't have a lawyer yet. So we went right over to the jailhouse and asked for an interview. Within minutes, he's face-to-face with Carrie. Really? Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. When the reporter got there, Carrie said, well, I do have some conditions for you before I speak. He said, before I say anything, my conditions are I want you to contact producers in Los Angeles because I want a movie of the week made about my story, just like my brother. Wow. But now it's like 1999 and movie of the week was like not a thing. But the reporter was like, sure, yeah, no problem. I'll contact a producer. Just tell me everything. So Carrie Stainer tells him everything. He says, I'm guilty. I did murder those four women. And he gives a full confession. He even described how he wrote the letter to the FBI and disguised his handwriting and used someone else to seal the letter so they wouldn't have his DNA. When the reporter asked him if he would have kept killing if he wasn't caught, he said he definitely would have. He would have kept killing or he would have killed himself. He also told the FBI that he sexually assaulted two of the victims before killing them. And people now just want to know, like, why did he do it? 
did you just want to get into the spotlight like, like your brother? Was there another reason why? So the media started to focus Carrie as the other son. Like, you know this family, you remember what happened, but this is the story of the other son. One son a hero and the other a monster. So they start looking at, like, what happened to Carrie? When he was younger, he was frustrated that Stephen came back. He felt like Stephen was just a kid. Like, he was like, anyone would have done what Stephen had done. Anyone with any moral fiber would have returned Timmy, would have escaped. Like, I don't know why he's being this national hero, right? Him and Stephen weren't close at all, and he blamed Stephen for destroying his family and his dad, making him a shell of who he was. Okay. He said he knows he wasn't loved by his family, but why wasn't he worth being loved as much as Stephen? Oh. I know. Like, that kind of breaks my heart. But, like, also don't kill people. Seriously. So he wanted to be noticed no matter what. But according to his defense lawyer, that is not true. He actually believes that Carrie is fame adverse. He was never looking for attention. He wasn't a shrinking violet, or he was a shrinking violet in any group or room. Doesn't seem like it to me. I know. He wrote a letter of apology from the county jail saying that being pushed into the media was too much. He said the media portraying him having a thirst for notoriety was nothing. After his brother's movie aired, he was disgusted and he wished he had never been made, or wished it had never been made. That's why he was a handyman, so he could do the work alone and not have to be around any other people. His family said that Carrie was always unwell, and they knew that their whole lives. They always thought something was wrong with him, even as a toddler. And his sister believes that he just kind of fell through the cracks of society, but she didn't think that he was a monster who could have done the things that he did. She just thought he was a little different. Okay. His defense lawyer believes that he does have a mental illness, that he has a compulsive habit, like, they said he has a compulsive habit of, like, pulling his hair, that he has OCD, that he had, like, a nervous breakdown from his past job. Um, and he kept having violent visions within his head, something that he said he'd been struggling with since he was seven years old. He said he used to fantasize about killing people at the age of seven, um, how he would do it, how he would t- tie them up, and how he would torture them. The age Isn't of seven? Wild? I feel like I don't even have, like, memories at the I age know. of seven. Like, I can remember things right. but i feel like i don't remember that much but i truly i think he just did it because he wanted the attention yeah like his brother so that's just kind of how they left it and they go that carrie stainer pled guilty to the murder of jolie armstrong in september of 2000 who was sentenced to life without parole for the murder of jolie in july 2002 um his trial for the murders of carol's son julie's son and selena Paleso began <laughs> His attorney was going to try to argue that he was psychotic and clinically insane, not fit to be on the stand, but he was found to be sane and the trial continued. He was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances and one count of kidnapping by jury on August 27th of 2002. He was sentenced to death and housed on death row in San Quentin. Stainer remains on death row as of April 2022. There have been no executions in California since 2006. With the court ruling over the flaws of the administration of the capital punishments in the state. So he's just sitting on death row. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That All is those crazy. things that happened to one the family. Same family. So if you like, it's a really easy watch. Like they did a really good job of yeah. this show. Um, and it's on Hulu. It's called Captive Audience, an American Horror Story. Um, it was just really interesting and so sad. Like, I just felt bad for Steven's kids. 
because I feel like they never really got to know him. Yeah, that's and now sad. she they were like, you know, I never really got to know my dad. And yes, people said good things about him, but then you learn like what happened to him while he was kidnapped. And then you as you get over that, you find out your uncle is this horrible, brutal murderer. murderer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of your father. Like you know what I mean? Yeah, those, like they those kids gotta be like Yeah, it's like twisted wild. Not. But they're what? Probably. They're older. They're like older. in their 30s, yeah, maybe say, 40s. Yeah. Older than us. Because they're being filmed for the documentary. Oh, on the yeah, show they were? Yeah, it's really oh, okay. good. It's really good. All right. You got to watch Interesting. it. Interesting. I know. Oh, that so, was a good one. I know. So, guys, let us know what you think. It's, bri- I mean, brand new. Hit the presses. Go watch it on Hulu. Just came out. I kind of want to watch that miniseries, though, now. I know oh, the original? Steven. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Like, they had the actors from the original miniseries reading the interviews. Like, you're going to read this interview with Steven Stainer as Steven Stainer. Wow. You're going to read the interviews with Carrie as Carrie. It was really cool. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. Huh. And it was kind of interesting, the take of, like, the actor who played Carrie, when he finds out like what Carrie did, like you and I mean, right. he's like you almost feel like you become that person, and sure, because you like, immerse wild, yourself in it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was really interesting. Wow. So let us know what you think, guys. Hit us up in the Facebook group, It Just Makes Sense Podcast Discussion Group. Follow us on Instagram at It Just Makes Sense Podcast. You can follow me at WWCM on the Buff. You can follow me at Jeff Seif and Twitter One F and Jeff. And hold on to your shorts, folks. Sam's going on vacation. So we've got a guest host next week. Tune in. Tune in. It won't be as good, but it'll be fun. It'll be better. (laughs) Bye. Bye.